Happy Friday, everybody. It is Friday, June 2nd, 2023. This is the Second Half Podcast. I'm Tom Powell, and as always, if you're listening to this, that means you made it through another week, and margaritas are in order. Now, why should you get margaritas this week? Well, a couple of different reasons. Summer has started. Pools are opening. Vacation season is here. My wife starts a new job next week, and this podcast is back. Uh, we're going to get into some of that here in a little bit as we get into uh, the meat of the matter, the stuff that we're going to talk about. Uh, but uh, as always, first, let me do a little bit of housekeeping for the people that are finding us for the very first time. If you're finding this podcast for the first time, if this is the first time you're listening to me, then there are a couple of things that you need to know. <clears throat> first... This is an amateur podcast. This is not professionally done. It's done in my home office with no professional help whatsoever. No editing, no mixing, no soundproof booth. You're going to hear some background noise. You're going to hear my son get up from uh, his late night escapades playing his games. You're going to hear the dogs bark. You might hear the deck guys show up. I got the, the deck people coming to stay in the deck. The point is, is that it's not a professional podcast, and if you hear some background noise that's not quote-unquote supposed to be there, then just roll with it, you know? I, I, I don't want to get an email from you. I don't want to get a bitch comment from you. I don't want to hear in a private message, oh my God, your podcast is so unprofessional. I don't give a fuck, okay? Don't fucking care. The second thing you need to know if you're finding me for the very first time is my website address. As chances are, if you haven't heard of me before this, then you haven't heard of my website. That website is oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E, media.com. If you head over to that website, you're going to find most things that you're going to want to know about me. You're going to find my blog. You're going to find links on where you can follow me on all of the social media sites, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Clapper, YouTube, all of it. You're going to find a link on where you can buy my first two books. I have uh, two self-published books. Uh, they are entitled A Grateful Life, The Life Story of a Husband, Father, and Taco-Loving Deadhead, and Dearest Renee, Letters from the Coronavirus War of 2012, uh, 2020. Sorry, 2012. <laughs> that was the year that the world was supposed to end for the Mayans. Sorry, different book, another time. Moving on. Uh, you're going to find a link on where you can uh, book me on Cameo if you want to do a video shout-out to somebody, as well as links on where you can get a hold of me, how you can send me something, and how you can support me generally. Once again, that's oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippymedia.com. So before we get into the political news, which is what we predominantly cover on this podcast, a couple of non-political uh, things to discuss, the first of which is why I haven't done a podcast in the last two weeks. Well, if you follow me on social media, uh, you might already know this, but um, my sister-in-law, Michelle, unexpectedly passed away on May 17th of this year from heart troubles uh, at the age of 44. It was sudden, it was unexpected, and it threw a loop into 
my wife's family that they did not see coming. Um, Michelle had, for some time, been struggling to breathe. And people had been encouraging her to go to the doctor. But as a lot of people in today's day and age tend to get, she didn't really like going to the doctors. I don't like going to the doctors. Nobody I know likes going to the doctor. So she put it off and uh, kept getting harassed and harangued by my in-laws across the board to just, just go see a doctor, just go see a doctor. Well, on the morning of May 17th, she was talking to my wife as my wife was heading into work, and uh, Michelle said, I think I need you to come take me to the emergency room, which was a pretty big deal for somebody that doesn't normally go see the doctor on a regular basis. She lives about 40, 45 minutes away from us, so my wife said, yeah, I'm on my way. She reversed course, started heading that way, spoke to her, uh, I believe, all the way to her house, if not most of the way to her house on the telephone. Uh, she got to her apartment complex and uh, said, you want me to come in and get you, or are you coming out? And I guess my, my sister-in-law said, I'm, I'll be out in a few minutes. So my wife waited a few minutes, and then uh, my sister-in-law called her back and said, I think I need you to call the ambulance, um, to which my wife did call the ambulance and began to head into the apartment building. Uh, I guess the... Uh, the door in the foyer was accessible. It was open, so she was able to gain entrance into the building itself without having to be buzzed in. And as she turned the corner, she saw her sister on the floor of the hallway in front of her apartment, uh, pretty much unresponsive. Uh, first responders showed up, <clears throat> began working on her, put her in the ambulance and took her to the hospital. And the hospital that they took her to was literally one block away. She lived that close uh, to a hospital. My wife obviously called me and said, they're working on her. She's not responsive. I need you here. You know, my wife was, was freaking out as one would freak out. So I dropped what I was doing, started heading that way. Her mom and other sister started heading towards her. By the time I got there, everybody was at the hospital emergency room and was waiting to be called back to see her. I got there, gave the valet my car, went inside, um, spoke to my wife for a moment, uh, stepped outside to call, I believe it was my daughter who was on her way, and then my wife stepped outside and said, they're calling us back. Um, we need to go back. So I, I went back inside and myself, my wife, my sister-in-law, Lisa, and my mother-in-law all went back into um, the emergency room area where they proceeded to put us into a little room with a couch and a couple of chairs. And my mother-in-law would not go in the room. She, she knew what that room was. She had been in rooms like that before. And the realization of what had happened began to wash over people. A few moments later, the doctor and chaplain arrived to explain to us that she did not respond to their efforts 
and medications and had in fact passed. As I said, she was 44. Um, this was extraordinarily unexpected and sudden. It was out of the blue. And uh, it's something that Uh, it's something that I wish nobody would have to go through but I especially wish my family didn't have to go through it I I don't want my mother-in-law to go through it I don't want my sister-in-law Lisa to go through it I don't want any of the cousins in the family to go through it and I really don't want my wife and kids to have to go through it but it is something that they had to go through nonetheless. Um, and as a result, uh, the last couple of weeks, between dealing with all of that and other things, I, I have been unable to make a podcast episode, and uh, uh, I hope you guys understand the reason why, and, and to be completely honest with you, if you don't understand, I don't really fucking care. It is what it is, and uh, family comes first. And uh, I just want to use this as an example once again. My wife understands where I'm coming from when I say this. Uh, I want to use this as an example once again to remind you to get a will. Go take care of. Everything that needs to be taken care of before it's too late. And tell the people in your life that you love them. My wife had no expectations whatsoever that that morning would be the last morning that she ever spoke to her sister. So, don't take things for granted. Don't assume the people that are in your life know that you love them. And don't leave anything to chance for when and if you eventually pass. Sorry to start the podcast on such a down note, but um, it needed to be explained. The two-week absence needed to be explained, and... uh, I'm about as much transparency transparency as I can offer. That's why I was uh, unavailable for podcasting the last two weeks. Uh, Michelle will be missed. She was uh, a major presence in a lot of lives. And her, her passing is going to leave a massive hole in the lives of of a great number of people that I personally know. Uh, She is not the only person that we lost since last we spoke. We also lost uh, an NFL great uh, running back Jim Brown. I want to briefly read you a little bit about Jim Brown from ESPN. 
In 2020, Brown was selected to the NFL 100 all-time team and also was ranked as the number one all-time player on the college football 150 list to celebrate those sports anniversaries. He was named the greatest football player ever by the Sporting News in 2002. Brown, who was selected in the first round of the 1957 draft, played nine seasons for the Cleveland Browns, 1957 to 1965, and led the league in rushing eight of those years. He rushed for 12,312 yards and averaged 5.2 yards per carry over his career. He also was named a pro bowler every year he played. He led the Browns to the league championship game three times, winning the title in 1964, and was named MVP three times. He ran for at least 100 yards in 58 of his 118 regular season games, never missing a game. He rushed more than 1,000 yards in seven seasons, including 1,527 yards in one 12-game season and 1,863 in a 14-game season. Brown also worked to empower the black community during the Civil Rights Movement. In June of 1967, Brown organized the Cleveland Summit, a meeting of the nation's top black athletes, including Bill Russell and Lou Alcindor, who later became known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, to support boxer Muhammad Ali's fight against serving in Vietnam. In later years, Brown worked to curb gang violence in Los Angeles, and in 1988 founded Amer I Can, a program to help disadvantaged inner-city youth and ex-convicts. He will be remembered as not only a great running back, but a great community activist, and yet another all-time sports legend has passed. All right. Uh... Let me move on to political news, which is what we typically talk about here. I'm I'm sorry to to have such a a dark moment for everybody early on in the podcast, but like I said, uh, both of those needed to be acknowledged and explained. Uh, In general political news, in other words, not the the high-profile political news, uh, we start in the Pacific Northwest where an Oregon state lawmaker gave rioters a tour and is now being charged. I'm going to read to you now from the New York Times. A Republican state legislature, a legislator in Oregon who was captured on surveillance video allowing demonstrators to enter the state capitol in December, was charged on Friday in connection with the breach of the building, which led to a conflict between officers and protesters. Now, let me pause that story really quickly. I have collected news stories over the course of the last two weeks. So if I say on Friday or on Monday or on Tuesday, it could be any one of those in the last two weeks. doesn't mean just last Friday. I'm trying to catch up on two weeks' worth of news here, so uh, forgive that aspect of the podcast. Getting back to the article. The lawmaker, Representative Mike Nierman, 57, was charged with official misconduct in the first degree and trespassing in the second degree, according to court documents. Marion County prosecutors said in court documents that Mr. Nierman, quote, being a public servant, did unlawfully and knowingly perform an act which constituted an unauthorized exercise of his official duties with intent to obtain a benefit or to harm another, end quote. 
On December 21st, while legislators were in session, Mr. Nierman calmly walked out a side door, allowing several demonstrators, many of them unmasked and holding American flags or pro-Trump signs, inside the state capitol in Salem. The moment was captured by widely circulated video surveillance of the breach. Mr. Nierman kept walking as the protesters went inside and were quickly confronted by local and state police officers who were shoved by some of the demonstrators as they struggled to get into the building. The footage showed protesters knocking off the hats of police officials and striking at officers, some of whom wore riot gear. At least five people were arrested during the breach, according to the Associated Press. One man was charged after he blasted police officers with bear spray. Sound familiar? More than 30 people made it into the vestibule, and about 150 protesters were gathered right outside the door, according to the state's legislative administrator. Mr. Nierman, a former software engineer who lives just north of Independence, was elected in 2014 and did not immediately respond to emails seeking comment on Saturday. It was unclear if he had a lawyer. And this is a habit and common practice now of Republican lawmakers uh, working with the domestic terrorists in our nation to provide them with information and access to our government buildings so that they can conduct their domestic terrorist acts. If they were just protesting, it would be one thing, but these guys don't just protest. They protest and then attack. Attacking an officer with bear spray? That's January 6th type shit. I hope they throw the book at Mr. Nierman. I hope he loses his seat and never holds public office again. It's time we send a message to these domestic terrorists that we're not going to tolerate their scum any longer. Now, speaking of scum, what's going on in Iowa could just be a coincidence, but I doubt it. In Iowa, private schools have seen a spike in tuition costs just as the state passes a school voucher bill. Coincidence? I don't know. I'm going to read to you from KCRG in Iowa. A handful of Catholic schools in eastern Iowa are raising tuition prices after the Iowa legislature passed a bill in January to make non-public education more affordable. House File 68 created an Educational Savings Account, or ESA, which allowed parents to spend about $7,600 on private school tuition, as well as other educational costs, such as tutoring or textbooks. The money would come from funds initially designated for public schools, but the state of Iowa would provide the public school district $1,200 to offset the loss. Republicans like Governor Kim Reynolds said the bill would help make private school accessible for more Iowans. Tuition at Holy Family Catholic schools in Dubuque will increase by about 30% for elementary school students who aren't Catholic. Those elementary school students who come from supporting parishes will see their tuition jump about 40% from $3,580 to $5,010. The tuition increases are across the board for Holy Family Schools from 2022 to 2023, 
but only high school students not attending a supporting parish will have to spend more than the voucher provided by the state. Phil Borman, who is the chief administrator for Holy Family Catholic Schools in Dubuque, said it's seeing a bump in enrollment at all levels due to the voucher. In an un- I'm sorry, he said that in an unlisted YouTube video. Sometimes when I'm taking notes, I take them a little too quickly for my own ability to decipher them. He also said the school will increase tuition over three years to improve the school because of the funds from the state. Quote, we're going to be able to leverage some of those funds to improve programming for our kids to do things that we've never been able to do in the past. We're going to be able to pay faculty and staff even more, a more just wage. This is something I think we can all agree with and they absolutely deserve. And so these things are going to come in time, but to get there, we're going to have to make some adjustments to our current tuition model. So in other words, you couldn't get anybody to come to your school, you weren't paying your teachers enough, and you didn't have enough access, the kids didn't have enough enough access to uh, proper programming and educational uh, 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 curriculum because of your lack of tuition, but now that the state is paying you, you can afford it. Funny how that works. He also said the out-of-pocket tuition costs will not increase for current families attending Holy Family Catholic schools who aren't eligible for an ESA. For the upcoming school year, only private school families making more than 300% of the federal poverty level aren't eligible for the vouchers. For a family of four, that's about $90,000. According to the Iowa Department of Education, everybody will be eligible for the state's educational savings account by the 2025-2026 school year. Lynn Holverson, who is the principal of All Saints Elementary School in Cedar Rapids, said it's difficult to predict exact numbers until school starts. However, she expects an increase in potential enrollment of fewer than 10 students. She said tuition increased for the upcoming school year to 5,785 from 4,132, about 40%. Brianna Richard, who is the principal of St. Matthew Elementary in Cedar Rapids, said its enrollment for the 22-23 school year is the same as the enrollment for the 23-24 school year. She said the school is increasing its tuition from 4,180 to 5,852, again, about 40%. Both schools said the cost to educate each student is more than tuition prices, which are offset by their local parish. Now, listen, I'm all for schools having the money that they need to provide the curriculum and educational experience that the students require, and I am all for teachers getting paid what they're worth. What I am not in favor of is a bunch of private schools suddenly milking the system now that the state is paying for it. Uh, This seems like it's awfully coincidental that the state all of a sudden passes a bill that says we're going to cover the cost of the private school tuition and private school tuition then all of a sudden increases. Seems to me like conservative lawmakers just made it easier for their conservative school uh, friends to get richer. Well, maybe that's the pessimist in me. Maybe that's just my father talking, but I don't know seems awfully coincidental to me. In my opinion, if you want to send your kid to a private school, 
I have absolutely nothing against that. But you send them to a private school. You pay for it. I don't care that you're already paying for the public school system. That's part of the system at work. If you want to pay for something above and beyond, beyond something more, then you go do that. It's not the, the state's responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the rest of the taxpayers in the state because you want something more. You already have access to a public school system. Send them there. If you don't like that, dig deep, motherfucker. That's on you, not on everybody else. Uh, All right, Uh, that's the general political news. Now let's move into the more high-profile political news. The news stories that you've probably heard a little something about or at least uh, know a little something about because it's been in the news just a little bit more. And let's start with the incredible thud that the Durham report landed with. Yeah, the Durham report. There's something you don't hear Republicans talking about anymore. I wonder why. I'm going to read to you from AboveTheLaw.com. They started with such lofty goals. In May of 2019, Attorney General Bill Barr appointed former U.S. Attorney for D.C. John Durham as special counsel to investigate the origins of the Russia investigation into Donald Trump and his campaign. MAGA World rejoiced, sure that the corruption Clinton conspiracy to bring down their hero was about to be exposed. And then? Nothing. Sure, Durham came out with an angry rebuke when the DOJ Inspector General found that the FBI investigation into the Trump campaign was appropriately predicated and not corrupted by partisan influence. And the special counsel did manage to get an FBI line attorney to plead guilty in 2021 to falsifying an email to renew a warrant of Trump's campaign uh, advisor, Carter Page. But other than that, it's been crickets. In September of 2021, just days before the statute of limitations was about to expire, Durham indicted former Perkins Coy uh, lawyer Michael Sussman for making false statements to the FBI about DNS traffic from a server in the basement of Trump Tower to the Bank of Russia. In fact, the traffic was real, but Durham insisted that Sussman had lied about approaching the FBI on behalf of the Clinton campaign, as if anyone in D.C. could possibly have thought otherwise. The jury acquitted Sussman within hours, at which point Barr was reduced to explaining to Fox's Jesse Water that while Durham, quote, did not succeed in conviction from the D.C. jury, I think he accomplished, accomplished something far more important, which is he brought out the truth in two important areas. First, I think he crystallized the central role played by the Hillary campaign in launching, as a dirty trick, the whole Russiagate collusion narrative and fanning the flames of it. End quote. Because if you think about it, isn't the job of a prosecutor to drop a bunch of speaking indictments implying that it was improper to investigate Trump's political uh, solicitation of stolen Clinton emails as his son met behind closed door with a Russian spy and his future national security advisor secretly promised sanctions relief to the Russian ambassador? Who cares about convictions, right? After the Sussman debacle, Durham superfans seamlessly switched to pinning their hopes of an indictment of 
Igor Danchenko, a Russian lawyer who was one of the main sources for the infamous Steele dossier. The longtime FBI source was charged with five counts of making false statements to the FBI with the jury trial commencing on October 11th in the Eastern District of Virginia. Prosecution got off to a rocky start with Dachenko's FBI handlers, the supposed star prosecution witnesses, admitting on direct examination that he'd actually been a pretty good source. And when confronted with prior depositions in which they described Denchenko as truthful and said he'd assisted in their investigations, they agreed that was about right. At which point Durham, who insisted on trying the case himself, lost his shit on redirect and impeached his own witness by bringing up the fact that he'd been recommended for a suspension. At the end of all of this, ladies and gentlemen, what we have is a four-year-long investigation that spent $10 million of taxpayers' funds to result in zero convictions, zero hours of uh, uh, incarceration, and a detailed final report that recommended zero new charges. In other words, the Durham report produced squat. Absolutely nothing. Nobody went to jail. Nobody's going to get charged. Nobody's going to go to jail. It was a four-year, $10 million opinion piece by conservatives. And now, just a couple of weeks after the report has come out, you don't hear anybody saying shit about it. Because it resulted in jack-fucking-squat. Nothing. The Durham report was a complete and utter failure. A waste of time and resources. Which, unfortunately, has become, become typical of the conservative side of the aisle in the United States of America. They're as useless as underwear on a hooker. Uh, speaking of hookers, uh, let's move on to Lauren Boebert, who filed for divorce, and then we learned that her husband allegedly assaulted their son. What can you say? Trash is as trash does. From CBS Colorado, new audio details... A 911 call made by U.S. Representative Lauren Boebert's son in December, where he reported his father, Jason, allegedly assaulted him by throwing him around the house. Boebert's son made two calls on December 11, 2022, one at 6.46 p.m. and another at 6.53 p.m. to Garfield County Dispatch to detail the assault. In the second call... The teenager tried to walk back the accusations before the Colorado, uh, Colorado congresswoman, who had been heard yelling in the background, takes the phone from her son and says he doesn't need help. The teen, sobbing and gasping for air, also says in the call that his mother has been living in the farmhouse on the property because she and her father have been having problems. Last month, Bobert, a Republican who represents the state's 3rd Congressional District, filed a petition for divorce from her husband. Quote, he was throwing me around, the son said. He called me a psycho. The dispatcher directed an officer to come to the house. She then asked if there were weapons in the house. Quote, I mean, there are weapons in the house, yeah, but I don't think he'd use them on me, he replied. He just th does this to me so much, he said. 
Then Lauren Boebert took the phone and said, Hi, I'm the mom. There was an argument over dinner. I understand that you guys got to come down and talk to them. She said that she was at the second location on their property. The dispatcher said she was sending officers to come talk to both Jason and the team to see if they needed help. A deputy came to the home, but no legal action came from the response. Quote, he doesn't need help, Bobert said. I think that's best left up to the professionals, don't you? Uh, I mean, if your son is calling 911 and sobbing that your husband threw him around the house, I'd say somebody in that fucking house needs some fucking help. I'd say that somebody in that house has a violence issue, somebody in that house has an anger issue, somebody in that house has a temper issue, and the child is the one taking the brunt of it. And you, being the quote-unquote mom, should be protecting your son, not your political career. You should be watching out for your son's safety, not watching out for your re-election. And that's what this was all about. Forgive me if I get a get... Uh, a bit get a bit personal in this story, but uh, I knew a skank bitch like Lauren Bobert. My mom was the same way. More concerned with her image, more concerned with what the public thought, more concerned with her own legal legalities and uh, uh, staying out of jail than she was about her son's safety. As a matter of fact, I knew a lot of people in my life like that at one point in time. A lot of people that knew I was the one getting tossed around, punched, slapped, beaten, bruised. But nobody wanted to say anything. Everybody wanted to turn their head. Everybody had other things that they were concerned about. I'm here to tell you as somebody that's lived through that shit... As somebody that has, forgive me for saying it, survived that shit. The kid needs to be taken out of that house immediately. Because it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop and it's only going to get worse. I know this from personal experience, folks. The beatings will get harder. The blows will become more repetitious. And every time he gets away with it, he becomes more emboldened to do it again. Get that kid out of the house before he kills him. I'm convinced, had I not taken matters into my own hands at the age of 13 and decided to leave on my own, one day walk out the front door and never come back that I wouldn't have survived my childhood I'm convinced of it get that fucking kid out of that house stop listening to Lauren Boebert because she's a member of Congress the kid needs help give it to him Excuse me a moment.
stories that like that they sometimes make me get to the brink of physically being ill when I think about it. When I think about a grown adult putting his hands on a child and don't, don't give me this shit, he's a teenager, I don't give a fuck. When I think of a grown man putting his hands on a child, hitting them, beating them, throwing them around the house, I almost literally vomit. If you're listening to this right now and you think it's okay to put your hands on your child, you're scum. You're the worst kind of human being. It doesn't teach your kid discipline. It teach your kid teaches your kid to hate you. It teaches your kid to not be able to trust anybody because the very first people in their life that they're supposed to be able to trust that are there to protect those kids are being harmed by those very people. There is no defending that type of shit. Get that kid out of that house. Uh, Let's move on down to the state of Texas. You'll have to forgive me. I know I'm not my usual jovial self on these things. Been off a couple of weeks. I don't have a lot of great news stories to to cheer you up with. Um, uh, So I'm I'm, I'm a little bit... uh, I'm a little bit low on my energy today. I'll I'll bounce back in the coming weeks. Uh, But let's move on down to Texas, where we got to talk about Ken Paxson, the attorney general for the state of Texas, getting impeached by his own party and then defending himself by admitting to massive voter fraud. This is one of the more bizarre stories that I've heard recently. I'm going to read to you from the Texas Tribune. Defying a last-minute appeal by former President Donald Trump, the Texas House voted to overwhelmingly uh, impeach Attorney General Ken Paxton on Saturday, suspending him from office over allegations of misconduct uh, that included bribery and abuse of office. The vote to adopt the 20 Articles of Impeachment was 121 to 23. The stunning vote came two days after an investigative committee unveiled the articles and two days before the close of a biennial legislative session that saw significant right-wing victories, including a ban on transgender health care for minors and new restriction on public universities' diversity efforts. The vote revealed substantial divisions within the Republican Party of Texas, the largest, richest, and most powerful state GOP party in the United States. Although the party has won several statewide elections for a quarter of a century and has controlled both houses of legislature since 2003, it has deep underlying fissures, many of them exasperated by Trump's rise in influence. Few attorneys general have been as prominent as Paxton, who made a career out of suing Obama and Biden administrations, uh, respectively. One of Trump's closest allies in Texas, along with Lieutenant Governor uh, Dan Patrick, Paxton unsuccessfully sued to challenge the 2020 presidential election uh, results in four states. Uh, 
Attention now shifts to the Texas Senate, which will conduct a trial with senators acting as jurors and designated House members presenting their case as impeachment managers. Permanently removing Paxton from office and barring him from holding future elected office in Texas would require the support of two-thirds of senators. Impeachment was supported by 60 Republicans, including Speaker Dade Phelan, and all five of the representatives from Collin County, where Paxton and his wife have lived for decades. All 23 votes in opposition came from Republicans. Afterwards, Paxton called the vote illegal, unethical, and profoundly unjust, adding that he looked forward to a quick resolution in the Senate. The move to impeach came less than a week after the House General Investigative Committee revealed that it was investigating Paxton for what members described as a years-long pattern of misconduct and questionable actions that include bribery, dereliction of duty, and obstruction of justice. They presented the case against him Saturday, acknowledging the weight of their actions. Today is a very grim and difficult day for this House and for the state of Texas, Republican David Spiller of Jacksboro told House members. We have a duty and an obligation to protect the citizens of Texas from elected officials who abuse their office and their powers for personal gain, Spiller said. As a body, we should not be complicit in allowing that behavior. Paxton supporters criticized the impeachment as rushed, secretive, and based on hearsay, according to actions taken by Paxton, who they say was not given the opportunity to defend himself to the investigative committee. This process is indefensible, said Representative John Smithy of Amarillo, who complained that the vote was taking place on a holiday weekend before members had time to conduct a thorough review of the accusations. It concerns me a lot because today it could be General Paxton, or uh, yeah, General Paxton. Tomorrow it could be you, and the next day it could be me. Well, don't commit crimes and it won't be you really that fucking simple. I'm going to read to you now from the election law blog. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Republican, said former President Donald Trump would have lost in Texas in the 2020 election if his office had not successfully blocked counties from mailing out applications for mail-in ballots to all registered voters. Harris County, home to the city of Houston, wanted to mail out applications for mail-in ballots to its approximately 2.4 million registered voters due to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the conservative Texas Supreme Court blocked the county from doing so after it faced litigation from Paxton's office. Quote, if we'd lost Harris County, Trump won by 620,000 votes in Texas. Harris County mail-in ballots that they wanted to send out were 2.5 million. Those were all illegal, and we were able to stop every one of them, Paxton told a former Trump advisor uh, during the latter's War Room podcast on Friday. Sorry, told Trump advisor Steve Bannon in his War Room podcast on Friday. So, Ken Paxton is so crooked, so corrupt, so beyond the pale that even Texas Republicans don't want anything to do with him. And then Ken uh, Paxton's defense of himself is, well, I stopped two and a half million people in the largest Democratic stronghold in the state of Texas from getting ballots, so therefore Trump could win, so you shouldn't impeach me. Dude, 
admitting to massive voter fraud to the tune of two and a half million isn't a defense of yourself. I, I'm stunned that that revelation is, is his defense of himself. Now people will say, well, the Texas Supreme Court sided with him. Of course the Texas Supreme Court sided with him. It's the Texas Supreme Court. They were all registered voters. What was illegal about giving a registered voter in that county a ballot? Is it because that county is heavily Democratic and therefore they can't have ballots? Because that's sure as fuck what it seems like. It sure seems like the now impeached Attorney General of the state of Texas is admitting that Biden wins Texas if not for his voter fraud efforts. We have to wait and see what the Texas State Senate does, keeping in mind, of course, Ken Paxton's wife is a state senator and will be one of the votes to either convict or acquit him on these impeachment charges, which is a whole, a whole nother level of corruption and um, a shining example of how not to do things. She should recru- uh, recuse herself from this vote, but she has yet to do so. And I don't think she will. <sighs> Guys, the fucking Republicans are off the chain. Fucking people have lost their minds. I'm going to read to you a story now, a story now from The Guardian uh, uh, dealing with another Republican, Rudy Giuliani. I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, since we last spoke, Rudy Giuliani is being sued by a former staffer over sexual misconduct allegations. This is what The Guardian has to say about it. A former associate of Rudy Giuliani sued the former New York mayor, presidential candidate, and attorney to Donald Trump for $10 million on Monday, alleging abuse of power, wide-ranging sexual assault and harassment, wage theft, and other misconduct, including alcohol-drenched rants that included sexist, racist, and anti-Semitic remarks. Filed in New York State, Noel Dumphy's suit includes the allegation that Giuliani often demanded oral sex while he took phone calls on a speakerphone from high-profile friends and clients, including then-President Trump. Giuliani is alleged to have told Dumphy he enjoyed engaging in this conduct, conduct while on the telephone because it made him feel like Bill Clinton. Of course, Bill Clinton, as you know, was impeached in 1998 for lying about an affair while he was president with Monica Lewinsky, then a White House intern. The lawsuit also includes an allegation that Giuliani asked Dumphy if she knew anyone in need of a pardon because he was selling pardons for $2 million, which he and President Trump would split. The complaint added that Dumphy said she referred people seeking pardons to him as long as she avoided the normal channels of going to the office of the pardon attorney, a role within the Department of Justice which should be subject to public disclosure. A statement to the New York Daily News states that a Giuliani representative said the former mayor vehemently and completely denies the allegations in the complaint and plans to thoroughly defend against these allegations. This is pure harassment 
and an attempt to extort, extort, uh, add extortion, they said. Giuliani was already in extensive legal jeopardy, as his work in Ukraine seeking dirt on Trump's rival led to Trump's first impeachment. His leading role in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election contra- uh, contributed to Trump being impeached an unprecedented second time. With his law license already suspended, Giuliani is reportedly uh, reported to be at risk of criminal indictment, and now he's facing a $10 million lawsuit for sexual harassment. Listen, dude, if you like to get blown while you're on the phone, and who doesn't, you know what I mean? Uh, then find a willing participant, not one that you have to extort in order to get it done. And if you can't find a willing participant, then hire a pro. I mean, Jesus, fuck. You were once the mayor of New York. Surely you know a pro or two. Listen, I'm not denying you the ability to get your fucking knob slob while you're on the phone conducting business. But Jesus fucking Christ, do it above board, my man. Why is it that all of these Republican guys got to coerce women into blowing them? Jesus fucking Christ, man. If you can't get your dick sucked freely, you got a fucking problem in this country. You'll have to forgive me. I'm going to take a brief break, and then I'm going to come back and finish the rest of these stories. Uh, To you, it might just sound like a a turnover. It was a quick blip. Uh, But to me, it's going to be a several-minute break, and I'll be right back uh, to get into more political news, starting with Florida and the Let Them Die bill. Back in a moment. Okay, thank you for the the patience and the brief break. I, I do try to insert ads in between these segments when I take a break, but sometimes, every time, the ad doesn't seem to go through. So clearly I need to figure out what I'm doing there. Um, but I'm back uh, for the second part of this podcast. And as I stated at the end of the first part, we're going to begin here with Florida's Let Them Die bill. I'm going to now read to you from... The New Republic. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill that will allow doctors and health insurance companies to deny care to anyone they want. Under the new law, quote, a health care provider or health payer has the right to opt out of participation in or payment for any health care service on the basis of a conscious-based objection meaning based on their moral, ethical, or religious beliefs. Providers and insurers will face no consequences consequences under the measure and will not be required to refer patients to a place that would provide that needed care. If they are penalized for denying care or coverage, the doctor or company can sue. The law makes no mention of protections against gender or race-based discrimination, leading opponents to rightfully worry that the sweeping nature of the text will let providers deny care or coverage to women, people of color, and LGBTQ plus people. A doctor could deny care, for instance, if they are morally opposed to gender-affirming care or if they don't like that a patient is having premarital sex. And it's not just doctors. Under the law, insurance companies, nurses, pharmacists, hospitals, ambulances, and more could all say they deny care. Quote, this bill is a broad license for healthcare providers and insurance companies to refuse services to people, 
No one should be denied access to medical care, said Brandon Wolf, the press secretary for Equality Florida. Quote, this puts patients in harm's way, is antithetical to the job of health care providers, and puts the most vulnerable Floridians in danger. Kara Gross, the legislative director and senior policy counselor for the ACLU of Florida, had previously warned that the bill left too much room for subjectivity in determining criteria for care. There is no definition of moral or ethical in the bill, so who determines what constitutes a sincerely held moral or ethical belief, and more importantly, why should access to health care be denied based on such vague, imprecise, and subjective terms, she said in a statement. This law is one of the latest moves in Florida Republicans' unrelenting attack on people's rights and access to health care. They have taken particular aim at women and LGBTQ plus people. Just a a few weeks ago, the legislature passed a bill that would let the state take transgender minors away from their families if they are receiving gender-affirming care. DeSantis has also signed a law banning abortion at six weeks before many people even know that they are pregnant. And this is just another example of the hellscape that is Florida continuously descending into chaos. But listen, if you want to take a silver lining out of this, let's take this. If healthcare providers can now vaguely deny care to anybody they want based on their own ethical, moral, or deeply held religious beliefs, then to any atheist healthcare providers out there, you no longer have to care for any member of any religious organization in the state of Florida. If you're an atheist and somebody comes in wearing a cross around their neck, dying of a heart attack, you legally can let them die. Now, some people will listen to this podcast and go, Tom, where is the silver lining there? The silver lining is shoving it back into the face of these assholes who think that this shit is the right way to run a country. If you want to deny people a care because of your deeply held religious beliefs, then we will do the same. Fuck you. I'm an atheist. You don't get care here. Fuck you. I'm an atheist. You don't get medication here. Fuck you. I'm an atheist. I'm not taking you to the hospital in my ambulance. That's what needs to start happening in Florida. Show these fucks how ridiculous their bills are. Just like they've already had to remove the Bible from many libraries in states like Florida who have passed certain laws saying certain type of books cannot be in libraries. There's already been one state that had to put an exemption in place for the Bible. Fight fire with fire, Floridians. If you are an atheist doctor in Florida, deny care to religious people. When a Christian comes in with an emergency, turn around, walk away, go have a cup of coffee. And if somebody says, whoa, you got to treat them, say the fuck I do. The new Florida law says that my deeply held religious beliefs, my moral compass says I don't have to, and I am protected by the law. Fuck you, die. Now, speaking of Florida, Florida's governor and mini-Trump wannabe, Ron DeSantis, has announced his candidacy for the Republican nomination in 2024. 
He announced it on Twitter, and as you know, there were some major glitches to the announcement. But he's in. So now he and Trump will battle it out to be the new Fuhrer of the modern-day GQP. A lot of people are asking, do I think DeSantis can win? Of course I think DeSantis can win. But as long as Trump stays out of jail, I don't think he does win. Now we're going to talk about Trump and the possibility of jail here at the end of this podcast. So we'll we'll circle back around to that aspect of it. But let's just assume for a moment, for the purposes of this conversation, that Trump stays out of jail and the two front runners for the nomination are Trump and DeSantis. I don't think DeSantis has what it takes to topple Trump in a primary. DeSantis plays really, really, really well in Florida. But he doesn't play outside the state of Florida. Outside the state of Florida, he gets destroyed. And you've already seen by him jet-setting around the country and the world that he gets rattled by the slightest pushback from any reporter. What the fuck do you think this guy is going to do when Trump is tearing into him on a stage? Listen, I hate Trump with the passion of a thousand sons, and I don't ever want to see him be president again. I'm just trying to talk realistically about the 2024 uh, Republican primary process. Trump is going to shove his hand up Ron DeSantis' ass and work his mouth like a fucking puppet. If Trump isn't in jail or already dropped out of the race, he is going to fucking smoke Ron DeSantis. Smoke him. As I said, we'll get to more of that in just a moment. But first, let me move on to the debt ceiling bill. Uh, as you know, the Republicans have been playing chicken with the nation's economy by holding the debt ceiling hostage and demanding that they get everything that they want in order to raise the debt ceiling. Well, that's over. Kevin McCarthy uh, went in and negotiated with uh, Joe Biden Joe Biden got him to agree to a $31.4 trillion debt ceiling increase. That passed the House three, uh, 314 to 117. The legislation has already passed, I believe, the Senate and is now on its way to Biden's uh, desk to be signed. Now, many members of the Republican Party are saying that this is, this is a bad thing that Kevin McCarthy should have never negotiated with, uh, with Biden. Uh, some of the more opportunist members of the House of Representatives, uh, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, are uh, siding with McCarthy in order to try and get what they want. In Marjorie's case, that would be the impeachment of somebody. She's asking for anybody to be impeached in exchange for her vote. She wants to impeach Merrick Garland, the Attorney General. She wants to impeach uh, uh, Mayorkas. She wants to impeach Biden. She just wants somebody impeached. She's pissed off that her hero got impeached twice, and she's got to impeach somebody in return. But my big question about this, and this is something that nobody can seem to answer, uh, but my big question about this is, If Biden is so senile 
if Biden is so riddled with dementia, if Biden doesn't even know his own name or what state he's in, then how did he manage to outsmart the Republicans in the debt ceiling negotiation? I mean, if he's a a dementia-riddled, senile old man who's walking around sucking his thumb and bouncing off of walls all day long, then the Republican Party in the House of Representatives is absolutely fucking useless because Biden just ran circles around him. You want to know what this deal sets in place? It sets in place no more debt negotiations until after the next presidential election. This deal takes one of their biggest talking points off the table until after Biden runs for re-election. Kevin McCarthy got fucking played. He got fucking played. He lost. And now they all have to try and figure out how to justify it. But at least our economy is not going to go down the shitter because a bunch of Republicans decided to play games with it. And that's what matters. But the big story, the big story of the last two weeks, and I think the big story moving forward, are these new audio tapes of Trump that have been discussed just here in the last, what, 48 hours. In other words, Lordy, there are tapes. I'm going to read to you now from Reuters. Federal prosecutors have a 2021 audio recording of former President Donald Trump acknowledging he kept a classified Pentagon document about a possible attack on Iran after leaving the White House, according to reports. You guys remember when he said, I didn't have any classified documents, and everything I had, I declassified. Uh, Everything I had, I was able to take. This blows a hole in all of that. Reuters was not able to confirm the report. However, the recording shows Trump, who is seeking the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, uh, understood he uh, retained classified material after he left the White House in 2021. Trump's remarks indicated he would like to share the information, but was aware of his limitations on his ability to declassify documents after leaving office. Trump has denied any wrongdoing, of course. A Trump representative would not comment on the report of the recording or on specific remarks attributed to Trump and called the investigation politically motivated. Quote, leaks from radical partisans behind this political persecution are designed to inflame tensions and continue the media's harassment of President Trump and his supporters, Trump spokesperson Stephen Chung said on Wednesday. Peter Carr, the spokesperson for special counsel uh, Jack Smith's office at the Justice Department, declined to comment. The Justice Department is investigating whether Trump broke the law by retaining U.S. government records, some marked as top secret, after leaving office in January of 2021. In August, the department disclosed that it was investigating Trump for removing White House records because it believed he illegally held documents 
including some involving intelligence gathering and clandestine human services, uh, sources, uh, my apologies, America's, among America's most closely held secrets. Smith's probe includes whether Trump or his associates obstructed, obstructed the Justice Department's probe into his retention of thousands of government records, about 300 of which were marked as classified. So what does this mean? Well, it means, quite frankly, that the former president violated the Espionage Act, and they have it on tape. And because this was a meeting, not only do they have it on tape, but they have it on tape combined with witnesses. Now, as you already know, Trump is facing indictment in New York. Uh, He is facing potential indictment in Georgia, where we believe that there's most likely going to be a RICO uh, charge leveled against at least a dozen, if not two dozen people, Trump being one of which. He's facing potential indictments on the federal level when it comes to his involvement in the January 6th uh, insurrection. And to all of that, I have continuously said, I think he's in a lot of legal trouble, but I don't think he's going to prison. I think that he's going to cut a deal. I've always thought he was going to cut a deal. There was going to be some kind of a deal cut where Trump agrees to never run for office again in exchange for not going to prison. And then Trump gets to go around the country holding rallies and convincing people to donate to him because they made him agree to a deal that would keep him out of Look, it's the only way they can beat me, by making me never able to run for office again. But it was all a setup, it was all rigged, I'm totally innocent, yada, 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 yada. I've long said that that was going to be the case. He was going to cut a deal to keep himself out of prison and then make money off of that deal for the rest of his fucking life. If this tape is true, if this tape truly does exist, if there's a a tape tape and witnesses of a meeting in which Trump, in 2021, admitted that he held on to classified documents involving a potential military strike against an American enemy and then talked about how he wanted to share that but he knew that he couldn't because he hadn't declassified it when he was president, then he is fucked and I believe he is going to prison. I believe, excuse me, I believe that a a charge of the violation of the Espionage Act in in conjunction with uh, actual audio tape evidence of him violating said act is an open and shut slam dunk he's got to serve some time in prison for this uh, prosecution coming his way. I think he can talk his way out of everything else. I think he can deal his way out of everything else. I think he can make sure that he never steps foot in prison Uh, by just agreeing to never run for political office again on so many of the other things. Listen, the the civil charge he's facing in New York, he's not going to be able to talk his way out of that. He's going to owe New York $250 million and not be able to to practice business in New York for whatever it is, 5, 10 years, whatever the, the, the ask is out of the New York DA. That's going to happen. 
And I believe that as a result of that, he's also going to be facing some financial troubles from the IRS. Because if he owes New York $250 million in back taxes, then you know he owes the IRS a fuck ton more. So financially speaking, I think the IRS and New York are just going to fist fuck him seven ways from Sunday. But criminally speaking, I think he has a, he has a way of talking himself out of the rest of, of these charges with the exception of this one right here. A lot of people I know say that they believe that the, uh, the, the, the impending Georgia charges are what's going to result in him actually going to prison. I don't know. I, I think he can get out of the Georgia thing as well. I think he's going to be found guilty on all of these uh, charges that he's going to ultimately be facing, but he's going to deal himself out of prison. I don't think he can deal himself out of prison in this one. I don't think that the prosecutors, if they actually end up charging him with this, which they damn sure should, if this tape is real, I don't think that the prosecutors can accept a plea deal that involves Trump not doing prison time. I don't think they can set that precedence. I think that we are... Closer than farther away from seeing the first ever former president go to prison for his actions. And if you want me to be completely honest with you, uh, I think a big part of the reason why Trump kept so many documents is just for bragging purposes. I think he sold some information uh, to, to make some money to alleviate some debts. I, I think that he disseminated information to various bad players in the world for his own personal gain. But I think the main reason why this motherfucker kept this shit is because he likes to brag. He likes to show people how he was the man. It's the only way he can win a dick measuring contest. He sure as hell can't win one by actually measuring his dick. So he's got to do shit like this. But this one, this espionage, this potential espionage charge, this is huge, folks. This is bigger than all of them. And many of the ones he's facing are pretty fucking big. If this tape is real, I don't see how federal prosecutors don't indict him on a violation of the Espionage Act. We're going to have to watch this very carefully, of course, but this is nothing but bad for Donnie. Nothing but bad. Uh, Folks, coming to the end of this podcast here, and I want to thank you guys for being patient over the course of the last couple of weeks. I'm, I'm drained this morning. I slept for shit last night. Uh, had a busy week. The last couple of days have been very busy. I got a busy day today and a busy day tomorrow. Uh, but I do encourage you to tune in next Friday because hopefully I have another podcast for you guys next uh, next Friday and the week after that and the week after that 
and the week after that. We'll see. Uh, the week of the 12th, which is not next week, but the weekend after that, there could be a slight hiccup in things as I've gotten used to recording these podcasts on Friday mor- morning rather than on Thursday. But I will see what I can do about recording one on Thursday of that, of that week. Uh, because Friday of that week, the 16th, I have, a, I have a doctor's appointment early in the morning and then a trip that I need to go on, a local trip that I need to go on as uh, my granddaughter will be having a birthday, and I need to be there for that, because that's what grandfathers do. Uh, My doctor's appointment that day for the morning of the 16th just so happens to be with my urologist, so Lord only knows what body part he's going to violate with those wonderful manly man uh, hands of his, Uh, but that's coming up two weeks from today, so say a prayer for my asshole if you would um but tune in next week hopefully i've got another podcast for you next week and hopefully my energy level is much much higher next week i have been dragging ass folks i mean absolutely dragging ass uh so uh tune in next week thank you for tuning in this week and as always stay grateful